but we really feel like the Lord's just leading us to go a little bit different direction here in just a little bit. So we've only got a couple weeks left of this series. But even as we're doing that, I really want to encourage you because um, as we're reading these stories, I hope that it's been more than just reading stories for you. And I hope it's been more than just, you know, goosebumps as you read a story. And I hope instead that through this series, and this is really what the point of this series is, is, is that we in our own relationships with Christ would have that deepened and strengthened and our interactions with him and our experiences with Christ would really be more uh, powerful. And, and I just, what, I'm, what I mean by that is this. I hope that over these next few weeks, that each and every person in here has a fresh encounter with the Christ, okay? And may, may, I don't know what it takes to get you there. I don't know what that's going to look like because, again, you see all of these interactions with Jesus and how they're all in different ways and different walks of life and all of those things. But I just hope that really, truly, individually, if you, especially if you've never experienced Christ, like really deeply, I, I, I just... My prayer over you is that that will be the case. And that's really what the series is about. And if we don't get there, boy, it's been a miserable failure. And I don't want that to be the case. So grab your Bibles this morning, open them up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats. If you don't own a Bible, that one that's spread out throughout the seats is actually our gift to you. So if you would grab that this morning. And once you have it, open it up to John chapter 5 and then take it home with you if you don't have a Bible, okay? John chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Just an absolutely beautiful story of Jesus interacting with somebody. And that's John chapter 5, verse 1. Here's how it begins. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Um, John doesn't give us a ton of details here of what's going on. And there's a lot of stuff that John's leaving out. And he gives us some stuff very specifically. And then there's some stuff that he doesn't even hit at all. Like in this story, Jesus' disciples don't even show up. Like, we don't know if they're there, and they didn't have much to add to the story, or if they just weren't here, if Jesus ditched them for a little while. Like, but it sounds like Jesus is alone through this story. Now, probably the disciples are there, and they just, there's no, it's about Jesus, so they're focusing on Jesus. But, and we don't know what the feast is that it's talking about. It says that there was a feast of the Jews. Well, that, there's a ton of feasts that it could be. So we don't know why he's in Jerusalem. We know he went for a feast. We aren't told what it is. But while we're not given us a ton of details on some things, then he really zeroes in and he points out some other things really very, like, closely. He talks about this pool. He says it's in Jerusalem. He says it's called, in Aramaic, the, the pool of Bethesda. He says it's near the Sheep Gate. And then he says that it's surrounded by five roofed colonnades. Which is really interesting because for years, people who were critics of the Bible say that it's not legit said, well, this is how we know it's not real because we haven't found this pool. Because it would obviously, if it was was in Jerusalem, we would find it. And it's supposed to be surrounded by five colonnades. And 
and we would very easily be able to recognize a pool that's surrounded by five colonnades because that would mean it's like a pentagon, right? Like it would be easy to identify this thing. And they said for years they, they couldn't find it. And they said, well, it's not, that's part of the, how you know this isn't true. And then they found it. <laughs> and it turns out that it wasn't a pentagon. What it was was it was actually two separate pools that were surrounded by four colonnades. And then there was one colonnade that went right through the middle. And so there were five colonnades. And they're like, oh, okay, so it's actually real. And, and then they found out that it was actually the case. And you can go and see it. Um, even to this day, um, go, and, go and visit it in Jerusalem. But it says that at this pool, there was this multitude of invalids. There were people who were blind. There were people who were lame. There were people who were paralyzed. And it doesn't tell us here why they're there. It would tell us in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. Oh, it's not there. It goes right from verse 3 to verse 5. And the reason for that, unless you have the KJV, or another version that might have verse 4, is that probably verse 4 was added by a scribe later on. Because every time you read through this, you're like, why are there a bunch of people hanging out around this pool? And so some scribe felt like he needed to add in a portion of it. And so in my Bible, it actually says at the bottom, verse 4, which was probably added later on. And it says that essentially tells us that there was this belief that the reason why all these people were here was there was this belief that every now and then the water would shake. And when the water shook, that it was an angel coming down and touching the water. And when the water shook, then the first person to get into the water would be healed. And everybody else wouldn't be. Okay, so they're all sitting there watching the water, waiting for it to shake. Now, most likely, we know it was a spring-fed pool. Most likely, it was like an intermittent spring. And so every now and then the water would come in and when it did, the water would shake and everybody would go, oh, an angel, and they would get down. And we don't know where this, this stuff started, like the superstition began. Like, we don't know. All we know is that once it begins, it's really hard to end it. And so by this time, everybody's sitting around this pool waiting. What is interesting to me is that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this feast, where does he go? He goes to where there's a bunch of sick people. And what that tells me is that Jesus goes to the need. He goes to where there's need. He approaches need. He's drawn to need. And that speaks to me. Anyway, so he gets to this pool. He, he goes, and it says it's right outside the sheep gate. And that's right where it's at, right outside the sheep gate. It's actually just outside what have been uh, Jerusalem proper, okay? So anyways, um, uh, but they apparently believe that these, some, the angel will come and touch the water. Somebody will be healed. Here Jesus walks up to him, verse 5, and says, One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And again, we see that Jesus knows already. Right, Like he walks up and he knows this guy's been there for 38 years. He knows him better than he knows himself, better than anybody else knows him. Jesus knows. So he walks up, he sees this guy laying there, he knows his story, and the first thing he does is he asks, do you want to be healed? Which is a question that, boy, it seems at first out of place, but I don't think it is at all. Because as you read his response, you can see that Jesus asked that question for a very specific reason. As someone who knows already, he asked this question. Verse 7 says his response. The sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. So his response is a complaint. And I'm moving really quick, and the reason why I'm really moving quick is I really feel like we need to end with that song again. Cornerstone. Um, So I want to get there quick. His response, though, here is a complaint. It's not a harsh complaint, but it's a complaint. His complaint is essentially this. I don't have anybody to help me, and so I don't get to be the first one down there. What I think is sad is his view of God's grace. Like, what a sad view of God's grace that's first come, first serve. You know? And everybody who's around this pool, as if God's grace can only get one. (laughs) And so they want to be the first one. So Jesus, it says, comes up, and it seems like Jesus kind of sneaks in. He slips in, and again, no disciples, or at least the disciples aren't talked about, but he comes up behind the guy, taps the guy on the shoulder, and says, do you want to be healed? And the guy responds with this complaint. He says, I have no support system to get there, and so I'm not going to have a healing. Then we get to verse 8, and it says, and Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. This is incredibly telling to me about Jesus as well, because Jesus doesn't debate with man. He doesn't try to correct his view of God. He doesn't dispute his theology or his view on angelic visitation. He completely ignores the superstition and the complaint, and he just says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He tells them to do the impossible. Right? Like, this is the one thing the guy cannot do. (laughs) And if this is anybody besides Jesus, this doesn't work. But Jesus says, you know that thing that is impossible for you to do, I want you to do it. And it says that he's healed, and then he takes up his bed, and he walks. So he calls him to do the impossible, and Jesus commands him to do it, and then it says that it actually happens. So we don't know how he knew he was healed. Like, it doesn't say anything about how did he feel like the power of God moving through him? Did he sense the feeling returning to his legs? Like, we don't know what it is that brought about this healing or how he knew that he was healed, but it's very clear that First he was healed, and then he gets up and he walks. He picks up his bed, and he does what Jesus told him to do. So Jesus calls him to do the impossible, and then he gives him the power, and he makes it happen. And then the guy does the impossible. Okay? And then the story takes a turn. Because it says that, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. And you don't even get to the end of verse 9. Like, that was verse 9a. Verse 9b is, now that day was the Sabbath. So now you get a twist on this. Verse 9 says, now that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he says, wait a second, the guy who healed me, he's the one to blame, he's the one who healed me, and then he told me to pick up my bed and to walk along with it. So you don't, you don't blame me, blame that guy, he healed me. And then their response, I love their next question, 
Because this says so much about them. Because here's what they ask. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? That's the first question in their mind. This guy was just healed. The guy who healed me, he's the one who told me to walk. And who was it that told you to walk? What? It's like you read that and you're like, what are you guys thinking? That should not be the first question in your brain. But that's the question that's in their brain. Now, now who, who told you to take up your bed and walk? And then you find out what the actual healing looked like for this guy. Because here's what it says. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. He didn't even know what the guy's name was who healed him. So you get this really interesting look at about how the healing went down. Jesus, and if it's in the colonnade, I kind of picture it like Jesus is kind of in the shadows watching. Sees this guy, knows everything about him. Slips up behind him, taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, do you want to be healed? And the guy goes, I don't have anybody to help me down into the water. And Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And then heads out the door. Like, it's like, a, it seems like Jesus is, like, really trying to be stealthy. And he sneaks out before the guy even knows his name. Like, I would think, as soon as I sensed healing, I would turn around and look for the guy who healed me. And at least ask his name. But he never even gets there. Like, by the time he's up, he doesn't get to give Jesus the big Jesus, I'm healed hug. Like, there's no Jesus hug, there's nothing. He's like, by the time he gets up, the guy is gone. He doesn't even know who it is. Seems like it's like a drive-by healing. Jesus is like, and you're healed. And takes off. It's like, what are you doing, Jesus? So by the time the people are asking, so who was it that healed you? Uh, I don't know. Wait, What? How do you not know? Well, Jesus just slipped out as soon as he could, as soon as the healing was over. And, and so, but even though Jesus does that, it sounds like, or you see, that after it's over, he tracks the guy back down. Verse 14, here's what it says. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And again, Jesus is not stumbling across this guy here. He was looking for him. He's not seeking Jesus here. Jesus is seeking him. And he says to him, listen, you're well. You're healed. And then he adds to that and he says, sin no more that something worse may not happen to you. That nothing worse may happen to you. He says, be holy. He says, don't mostly stop sinning. Stop sinning. Sin no more. Don't get rid of 93% of the sin. He says, completely get rid of the sin. Stop. Sin no more. He says, here's why. Because there is something worse than being paralyzed for 38 years. And I don't want that to happen to you. He says, I healed you so that you can be holy. That's the order, he says. I healed you, now be holy. 
from here it zeroes in on the Sabbath then. It, comes, it gets away from that and it gets to verse 16. Here's what it says. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now. And I am working. So these people who had these like the, the hardcore Sabbath followers. They were serious about it. And there was a reason they were serious about it. And if you can find the reason that they were serious about it in Numbers chapter 15. We're not going to read the story, but read it sometime. Numbers 15 starts in verse 32 and following. There's a story of a guy who after the, the instruction is given of not working on the Sabbath, he decides to go and work on the Sabbath. And you can read the story. And so they're serious about it because apparently God was serious about it. And even more than that, there's a passage that I... I'm not going to, it's not up on the screen, but I want to read it to you in Jeremiah chapter 17 about the Sabbath. It's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. This is as they're coming to the end of being a kingdom and having a king and they're about to lose it all. And as they are, Jeremiah makes a prophecy. And that's found in Jeremiah 17, verse 24 and 25. That's where it says, but if you listen to me, declares the Lord, and bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work in it, then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David. So essentially what he's saying is, for those in Jerusalem, if nobody carries anything into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath, then I will restore to you a king on the throne of David. So they get serious about this. Because this is an important verse. Because if they can live this verse, then that means the Messiah will come, right? Like if they can live this verse, if God has said prophetically that if nobody carries anything into the gates of Jerusalem, then I'll send a king to sit on the throne of David. Boy, that's important for them to observe. And so, of course, they define how do we figure out what God is saying here, because it's important that we get this figured out. Pretty clearly what God is saying is, what are you doing bringing things in and out of the gates of Jerusalem? You're doing commerce. You're doing trading. But they defined it as you couldn't move something from one sphere to another sphere. Like you couldn't move something out of your house because if you're moving into the gates, you're bringing it into Jerusalem. So a sphere of dwelling is how they defined it. So anything that you carry out from one place to another would be breaking the Sabbath. So then they had a problem. Because what about God? Is God breaking the Sabbath? And they said, no, 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 he's not breaking the Sabbath. Yes, I know, if I cut myself on the Sabbath, it'll start healing immediately because God's working on the Sabbath. We understand that. But he's not moving anything from one sphere to another because all of it is his sphere of influence. (laughs) So they said, so he's not actually moving from one sphere to another. We understand that he's working, but at least he's not breaking that one. Okay, so this was how they worked all of this out. So here are these people on the Sabbath in Jerusalem, standing at the sheep's gate. And along comes this guy carrying a bed on his way to the temple. Sheep's gate is very clearly in between this pool and the temple, which is where he ends up. 
and they see him breaking Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. So they come down on him. No, 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 you can't break this. He says, no, 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 it was the guy who healed me told me that I should carry my bed. And so I'm carrying my bed. And they say, well, wait a second, who told you to carry the bed? And he said, I don't remember his name. I didn't get his name. So then it sounds like from here, the, he sees Jesus in the temple. And then it says that he goes back and he tells them who it was who healed him. Verse 16 and 17, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. They get that. God is God. But then he says, if God's working on the Sabbath, so will I. He says, and I am working. Now that just makes them matter. Because that's called blasphemy. He just said, if God can work, then I can work, because he's my father, Okay. So verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was also even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then the rest of the chapter is about that and what that means. And I, I, I would read the rest of the chapter, but I really want to stick with this guy. Because I think this guy is super interesting. Some people struggle with this guy. Because there's not much redemptive quality very clearly in this story about this guy. Jesus doesn't ask him, do you believe that I can heal you? He doesn't ask for faith. He just heals him. And so if we think that somehow our healing depends on our quality or quantity of faith, this story shoots that out of the water. And then the guy sells Jesus out, right? Like, they're like, okay, so why are you carrying that? I just got healed. And then the guy told me to. He healed me. It's his fault. Like, he totally sells Jesus out, not once, but twice, right? He sees Jesus in the temple, and then what does he do right afterwards? It says that he, oh, okay. And then he goes and he tells them who it was that healed him. It sounds like he sells Jesus out twice. And a lot of people struggle with this guy and his heart and why Jesus would heal this guy. Because why this guy? And I don't struggle with the whole him selling Jesus out. Because the guy's on trial. And what does he do when he's on trial? He points at Jesus. And I do that all the time. So I can't have a problem with them on that. And quite honestly... You know, I, I compare this guy to the guy who's in John 9 who's healed and they come at that guy and he says, you know, listen, I was blind and now I see. You got a problem with that, take it up with the other people, the guy who healed me, right? Like, this guy doesn't seem to have that same thing, but still, like, Jesus is the one who decided to heal him. Jesus is the one who walked up to him, not asking for faith, taps him on the shoulder and says, I'm going to heal you today, and gives him the impossible command. The thing that really gets me is verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sometimes I think we want Jesus to just make the first statement. 
see you are well. We just want him to heal us. We just want him to forgive our sins. We just want him to provide us with salvation and then leave it at that, but he doesn't. He says, see you are well. And then he says, sin no more. Because there is something so much worse than being paralyzed. Holiness is important to Jesus. You can't stop after see you are well. Because Jesus says sin no more. And let me be clear on this though. That this is also impossible. When he went over to the guy and he tapped him on the shoulder and he says get up, take up your bed and walk. Impossible. And when he says to him, sin no more, also impossible. But in the same way that Jesus gave him the power to rise up and walk, he gives him the power to sin no more. I mean, this is Pentecost today. And the power of the Spirit inside of us gives us the power to do the impossible. It gives us the power to be sinless. So Jesus says to him, sin no more. Because he's more concerned with the state of his soul than he is with the state of his legs. So he says, sin no more. And then makes it possible by his power. Okay, so Jesus calls us to do the impossible. In the same way that he told him to rise up, take up his bed and walk, he also tells him sin no more. Calls him to do the impossible. Because he makes it possible. He calls us to do the impossible, making it possible. But how does he do that? Through our relationship with him. If we get disconnected, you see, because even if, okay, if we say that we want him to stop when he says, uh, see you are well, we also can't skip that line. Because you can't just, see some of us think that like Christianity is really just the sin no more part. <laughs> right? Like, like Christianity is essentially just stopping sinning. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. But that's not it at all. He doesn't say sin no more until he says, see, you are well. He gives them the power first, and then it happens. And so our relationship with Christ, the power of the Spirit, is what makes the sin no more possible. He calls us to holy, but he calls us to holy after he gives us the power to be holy. He says sin no more after he gives us the power to sin no more. He says get up and rise up and walk after he gives them the power to walk. He gets up and walks. And I guess when I read this story, it's so important that we get that all in order. See you are well. Sin no more. But I read this story meeting Jesus and the story to me when I read it is all about the power of the relationship with Christ. Because on one side you have this emptiness of this superstition of them sitting around the water waiting for it to shake so that they could get 
healing from it. So empty. And then on the other side of it, you have this emptiness of this Sabbath worship. Right? Like these people are sitting at the gates and they're watching for somebody carrying a bed and they totally miss the Messiah who walked through the same gate to get to the temple. That's the whole point of the Sabbath and making sure they're observing it is so that the king could be back on the throne of David. But it's like they looked over the top of him because they saw the mat back in the back. Oh, that guy, he's carrying a mat. And then he says, the guy who healed me. And their first question is, and who told you to carry the mat? Like they completely miss it. And so you've got this emptiness of this superstition. You've got this emptiness of the Sabbath worship. And right in the middle you have a relationship with Christ. And the power to be healed. And the power to be holy. And let me just say that relationship with Christ and what this whole series is about is about experiencing him. Have you ever experienced his goodness? Truly experienced it. Have you ever been brought to tears as you think of his kindness? Has it ever just brought you to your knees thinking about the Christ and what he has done for you and experienced him in that way? Have you known the power of the spirit inside of you? Have you sensed it and known that he is giving you the power not only to be well, but also to sin no more? Have you? Because if not, oh man, this whole series is pointless if we don't get there. I am regularly convicted by a story told by a guy some of you have heard of before and some of you haven't. His name was Karl Barth. He was a theologian. Some people loved some of his stuff. Some people don't love some of his stuff. Some of his stuff was weird. But he told this story that I just absolutely loved. And the story is of this group of people who lived in the desert. And they realized living in the desert, man, you need water. So they dug a canal that ran down from the mountain down into the desert. And it provided water. So around this canal, cities grew up. People made their homes there. Life flourished around this canal. But over time, the canal went dry. There's no more water going through it. No more life. All of the effort, all of the huge cost to build it, and there was nothing yet still going through it. On the walls, you could still see the marks that the water made as it went through. And and so the people would tell stories about the water that went through it. They took care of the canal and they defended it and they named their children after its architects and its engineers and but in reality it was just a historic thing it was meant to convey water and it was meant to convey life 
but it had become static. It had become the ends instead of the means. People told stories about it instead of drinking from it. And eventually it got to the place where no one had any memory of what the water in the canal actually looked like. And I am convicted by that story regularly. Because I ask myself, why do I do what I do? And I ask you this morning, why did you come to church this morning? You come because it's what you've always done? Or did you come hoping that maybe in worship you would be moved? Or that maybe Alan would really bring it this week and that message would really get you right in the heart? Or did you come hoping to experience Christ? Because if you came hoping to be moved by something said or done in this place, you know what you're doing? You're sitting around the pool waiting for the water to shake. Move me, Alan. Move me, worship team. Or if you're here because that's what you've always done, You're focused on that Sabbath when the Christ who is greater than the Sabbath, greater than this service, greater than this building, greater than praise assembly, greater than all of us put together, is here and waiting for you to experience him. He's come looking for you. He says, experience me. That's what I read in this story. Right in the middle of empty superstition and empty tradition, you find Jesus Christ. The only way, the only truth, and the only life. And this morning, boy, I hope you've experienced him. And if you have not, boy, I hope right now you sense the need to don't ask somebody else to move you. Don't wait for the water to shake. Meet with Christ. Do whatever it takes to interact with him and to experience him. Because he's the only one who can do something for you. It's only spirit right now who can move in your life and change your heart. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. Before we move on from this series, I really just want to say to you, take this time to experience him in a deep and fresh way. And as we sing this song, Christ Alone, I pray by the power of the Spirit that you experience him in a fresh and anew today. And that these words wouldn't just be words that you sing because that's what you're supposed to do. But instead, right now, the Holy Spirit would raise Jesus Christ up in your heart. And that right now, the Spirit would be moving in this place. And that when we sing in Christ alone, we would mean it from the depths of our being. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is the strength. And I will stand 
man, I don't have the power to. And that same sin keeps coming back over and over and over again. But Jesus Christ says to you today, sin no more. And he wouldn't say that unless he gave you the power to do it. And so as you sing it, may you mean it from the depths of your soul. Because the power of the Spirit is available to each and every one of you. And no matter what you are going through, he will give you what it takes to do what he calls you to do. So this morning, when you sing those words, know it from the depths of your being in Christ alone.